0: Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, it's me, the Comeback Coach. Guys, I just want to tell you about a person in my life that is truly, truly amazing. And she's actually changing the world one house, one home at a time. Her name is Tammy Moses of The Hoarding Solution. She's the founder and chief encouragement officer of Homes Are For Living, The Hoarding Solution, which is a veteran-owned and operated business. Tammy provides virtual consultations and workshops on the issues of hoarding. She believes in inspiring others to take their adversity and use it for the greater good. She is the voice of AKOPTH, adult kids of parents that hoard she is also a voice and advocate for our of uh, for y-l-i-t-h youths living in the hoard you can connect with tammy at homes are for living at gmail.com and on facebook at instagram at the hoarding solution so guys if you know anybody that's struggling with ho- any kind of hoarding issue please reach out to tammy She has a heart of service, and she truly cares about people. All right, guys, remember Vertical Momentum. The only way to go is but up. Hey, guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman. Guys, this is going to be an amazing show. They say never meet your heroes. That's BS because Lauren is one of my heroes, one of the best people on the face of the planet. And I'm so honored to be able to have him on here. My brother, how are you? I'm awesome,
1: Richard. Everything you said about me, I say about you. So thank you for that.
0: And by the way, you are the best dressed man on social media. So I'm wearing <laughs> I'm wearing a fedora in honor of you today.
1: Amen. All right. Nice. You'll have to send me a picture because I can't see you, but I know it's a good one.
0: Awesome. So, so what's going on? I know you've been busy, brother.
1: Yeah. Haven't we all? Uh, just living life, um, um, living within the dream, uh, which is different for me than when I used to uh, seek to live the dream, you know, because that meant I found out I would dream it plenty of nights, but I'd wake up to a different reality. I knew I was inside of the world and the promise of purpose when I would wake up from those dreams and everything was still the same in my waking world. So there's a difference.
0: (laughs) Now, you know, I I love everything you're doing. I love everything you're about. Um,
1: And you're the
0: perfect person for this show because a lot of people think that just because they come from a bad place, they can end up in a better place. And Mm -hmm. you are the epitome, epitome of success. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about your past and what made you the man that you are today?
1: Yeah, I can. Uh, well, I know this sounds kind of just. Uh, it may ap- it may appear like it's casually thrown out there, but it isn't. It, it what I, I've had this question before, Richard, and the the answer will always be the same because the truth never changes. And what I mean by that is everything that I've every moment I've ever lived. Has led to the man I am today. Um, all of it, because I know that what is greater than myself does everything with us on purpose. And it's up to us to, you know, embrace those experiences, process those experiences, uh, glean from those experiences, if you will, and uh, take it and use all of those things with purpose. So it's like a slinky, you know, Uh, these opportunities are sometimes buried or so they seem within all kinds of things, betrayal and low self-esteem, depression, uh, uh, you know, pain and trauma. But all of those doors have a secondary door right there with them. Somewhere on that same door is like a doggy door, if you will, where I believe our future blessings at the same moment that the trauma enters, our future blessings, ride sidecar, come through that doggy door and they're born into the process of becoming. So, you know, some are manifested quicker than others. Others, we have to use our patience and stand in the middle of the two lane highway of life with passion on one side, purpose on the other, but it's our patience in the middle that allows us to wait within Within comfort and within understanding and within you know faith, uh, that's really where you you have to have your faith is standing on that yellow line of patience, because you have to wait on it. You know it's going to come when it's perfectly and divinely timed. So, that's pretty much how I look at it. Uh, so
0: where where were you born and what kind of little child were
1: you? Oh, I was born in a little village. Actually, uh, it's called Barian Springs in Michigan, uh, it's still a village today. Uh, and I was born there in a place called Berry and General Hospital to my original, my Eve, Lucille Williams, who was my birth mother, who I met for the second time outside of the birthing process at age 32. So um, we came in together, but then uh, we were separated, you know, for all those years. and. Um, I grew up with an adopted family, and I'm doing air quotes, even though you all can't see me, because it wasn't a legal adoption. Uh, I was referred to as a backdoor deal between two African-American women in 1962. So um, that's where it all began, that, the, the, the pass-off, the trade-off, if you will. And uh, grew up in a, a small town called Niles, Michigan, with my adopted family until my mother died and I entered the foster care system. And I stayed there from age 11 uh, till I was 16.
0: Now, you know, I used to be a, a I, I guess they would call them an emergency foster parent. Mm-hmm. You know, had to go all the classes and all that good stuff. But it's amazing how, you know, children in foster care system you know, they'll keep everything within like with a bag because they, they don't know if they got to be on the, within 30 minutes.
1: Yeah. Oftentimes that's a trash bag. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's a true thing. That really happens. So, how is, it, so how is it,
0: you know, making friends and uh, building relationships when you are always on the move?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. Making friends, well, I had two things going on for me, uh, which a lot of the kids did not. Many of the kids that I crossed paths with in the system, because they had been moved so much, and I came from a background where I had been in parochial school for most of my my elementary years, and so I was a little ahead of the public school Uh, um, curriculum. So whereas a lot of kids, because of them being moved and traumas and whatnot, they were placed in what back then in the 70s was called special ed. Um, Today, I think they call it special needs remedial, that sort of thing. Um, I was allowed to go into regular classrooms in public schools because I was, you know, like I said, coming from that background. But I would make my friends not at school, because that was a setup, you never know from day to day. You know, so um, my friends were people. And I guess it's interesting that I've never been asked that question. I'm sitting here thinking I'm seeing a few faces. Um, The ones that I I crossed paths that we lived in the same rooms in the same houses. But sometimes we were there for days together, sometimes weeks, a couple times, a few months, but usually not longer than that. And those were the people closest to me uh, because. You know, we were being cast in the same production, if you will, and so um, that's where they were, because you know that's a second world in there. Yeah. You know.
0: Now, like when I was growing up and I was abused, like I think we talked about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, my my piece was when I would be reading a book, so I lost, I immersed myself in reading. What was your coping mechanism? It was the exact same
1: thing, which is one of the reasons I believe I am a master storyteller today, seriously. And I'm not ashamed to call it that because I absolutely adore story. It's what made everything make sense in my world. Uh, I had always been um, a a voracious reader. As a matter of fact a couple years before my mom died in the school i was in they'd have a, a book report contest every year and i had won like three years in a row 300 and some books and the next closest person would be like 60. and uh as a matter of fact that third year i think some parents must have complained or something because the principal came to our home and it was like well after i was in bed probably 10 at night and i heard the doorbell and i heard them out there i could couldn't really ascertain what they were saying, but I knew it was about me. So I cracked my door and I saw my principal standing there who was also my teacher because his wife and he were the only two teachers in the school. So in one room, which was his, there was uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And in the wife's class, it was first, second, third, and fourth. There was no kindergarten at that school. So anyway, and he said, well, I've had a couple calls and you know, could is, is my, my name back then was Larry. That's the name I had, which wasn't legal, but it was all I knew until after she died and the state got involved and they said, you're really Lauren. So anyway, so he was like, uh, you know, how does Larry find the time to read this many books? And my mom, (laughs) I saw her point towards the door to my room and she beckoned him with her hand. And I ran and dove in the bed to go back to what I was doing, which was under the covers with a flashlight, reading a book and I'll never, it was a Hardy Boys mystery that night because they, he asked to look at the book and I had been reading the entire series. So, you know, he knew the order. So that's all he needed. He saw that he knew what my last book report was and he saw what I was reading and he saw the books in my room. So that was the end of that. But I always, because in my adopted family, in both of my families adopted and biological, I'm the youngest, but no one was at home when my mom died living at home, but myself and her. And so you know, books were always a place to experience. I wanna go to that island. I want to play with the Lost Boys. I want to, you know, and so I would go there. And it served me well, because the moment the trauma began inside, which was the very first night of foster care, um, two things happened. First, what is greater than provided me a safe space within my spiritual world and my mental world. It was in my mind, it was a room and I could go to that room and I would narrate to myself while there, it was the place where I would go when the trauma began to protect me from whatever it was protecting me from. I didn't create it, it was created for me. So I believe that my experience through reading and using my imagination was what really allowed me the free will to allow what is greater than me to provide that safe space for me. If that makes any sense.
0: Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Cause I remember when I, I was being <coughs> abused, you know, I used to go in my, my, my closet and cry and mm-hmm. just read. Um, but you know, I'm going to ask you because there's a book that really, changed my life and uh-huh. helped me be the man I am today um okay. it was a book called a child called it and it was about uh, you know abuse but now what was the one book that would you say was uh
1: life-changing for you as a child or as an adult
0: well as a child and then we'll get getting into the adult what was the one book that you always was that was your one go-to
1: Oh boy. Great question. Cause there were so, there were hundreds, absolute hundreds. I would have to say my favorite book from childhood. Hmm, man. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. They call me the male Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I see why. (laughs) Uh, I would have to say that I know this is going to sound weird, but my favorite, and it wasn't just one book. It was their entire series. It was the boxcar children. Okay. I loved them because they, they were orphans. You know, I was an orphan. They had, they had adventures, not just experiences. And that's how I started. I pretended I was in my real world. I pretended I was an undercover kid like an agent inside this secret dark world. And so what that did for me, in reality, was it connected me to all of the things internally, that we all have available to guide us when nothing or any that nothing and no one is there. or So we think to guide do the guiding for us. If that makes sense, I, I you know i believe that you know inside of us in a protected space are all the things that truly matter uh, integrity insight intellect um, instinct all of the in words and they're found inside of us and the only way that anything can get in there and take it in one direction or the other is through invitation I
0: so, love right i love that mm-hmm. i interviewed a young lady her name was Annette Wittenberger i think we know her oh, i do And I have her uh, hat on right now. She's truly amazing. And, um, we were talking about how she was abused as a little girl, and how when a person is abused at a younger age, they, whatever they were at that point, either if they were very quiet, you know, they might become very outgoing and gregarious, or if they were outgoing at one point after their abuse, they kind of, um, go into a shell um after after your your issues um did you stay the same or did you actually start you know becoming more outgoing after that Hmm.
1: i would have to say well not right off the bat off the bat you know the first time or two I don't think I even understood what was happening. Please remember, you know, it was like seven, maybe eight days after we buried my mother, the one, only one I had ever known. And I was raised, I might add, in a Seventh-day Adventist home. So very strict religious background with a lot of fear-based things implanted within it, ingrained within it, the doctrine and whatnot. And I, was struggling more with, believe it or not, not the abuse, the sexual abuse that had started so soon because I didn't even know that existed in the world. Honestly, I I did not know until that first night when the three boys who shared the room with me, we got locked in at 8 p.m. and they came right over to me and I wasn't trying to have any conversation. I was lying on my stomach, face in the wall crying and I had a plastic bag that I had thrown one of my mother's hand towels from her bathroom in at the last minute uh decision before i got in the state car to leave that home for the next five years and i took that hand towel because it smelled like my mom's triple aniline hand lotion and it was the only thing that could soothe my spirit it was the only connection i had to larry and the world he had been in all his existence so i'm not i've got this room that's been created for me and through me to protect me from the things that could cause what I believe to be a mental break. But at the same time, while that's going on, I am, I am convincing myself how to use these experiences as a study. I began like every person in every situation was a case study, almost like Where's Waldo? My world every day, I would look for what was Waldo. What is the thing inside this this experience that I'm in this story today? And how I would make it through each day was I would look at the next day as a new chapter. So I didn't live in fear that the story would end. I, I lived in expectancy of what the next chapter could be. And I believe that that is that laid the grout in between the tiles of everything that God had already placed within me because I was an innocent child, all the things that uh, had come through other doors, me not knowing what they meant or represented at the time prior to my mom's death, all those things. Every Let's put it this way. It was a time where everything that I'd ever been, everything that I was in the moment, and everything that I would possibly ever dream to become all showed up in the same place. And what began to happen simultaneously all at one time, was the belief that there was something greater than today. And I always wanted to find the ER. So no matter what it looked like, you know, it might be in the homes in the the environments, the personalities, of course, inside the room I lived in and out uh, changed continually. But I knew that one thing would always be the same, no matter where they would send me, no matter who was there when I got there. And that was me. And once I figured that out, that is when what is greater than me reached out and said, Well, guess what? You never have been alone. And you never have to be. Amen. And that was when it all began. For real. So now, you know,
0: when was, it, you know, because a lot of people don't realize that a lot of foster children, you know, they, they call it aging out of the system. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, OK, you're 18. All of a sudden you're out on the street and you have a lot of a lot of people had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And, and then because of because I found that when an adult acts out, it's usually because of trauma that happened between the ages of three and 13. So, you know, so now that um, foster child, they no longer have a foster home. And now they're out on the streets and now they got trauma issues to deal with. What was your transitioning out into the real world like?
1: Well, I actually transitioned two years prior to my 18th birthday. Okay. And that was another thing that, you know, by this point, uh, I'm already, I'm already inside of the i'm riding let's put it this way i'm 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 inside the sidecar i'm riding sidecar where what is greater than i is driving the motorcycle okay so i'm riding sidecar i don't feel i have a i don't have a universal license yet cuz i don't understand it all yet but i i knew about that in word instinct when i have a hunch it had never led me wrong every time i walked into a home for the first moment within seconds I would know things that there's no way I should know. And it would say, you know, "Mm," you know, and we all have experienced that where we go, something just doesn't feel right. Yep. "Hmm, There's something off here, right. That I call it a GPS system. Yes, but it is a guided purpose system for me. And so I was, I would go, I had aged to the point where when you're 15, 16, you don't really get placed in private homes much anymore. You're, you're now fodder for uh, um, group homes, uh, congregate care as it's known um, in the system. And this was an institutional setting. The same uh, I learned later in life, the same green mattresses that you find in a county jail or prison. And I've experienced both the same yellowish paint on the walls, the big, big block bricks, same as many county jails and prisons, the same silver stainless steel desk bolted to the wall with a little circular plate like seat, the same as in county jails and prisons. And even down to the door in the window, or the window in the door, excuse me, where the staff which is the same all the way through can look in and check to make sure you're in your room. The only thing that wasn't like those other, the the latter two jails and prisons was that we didn't get locked in. Now there were lots of homes, private homes before where we would get locked into the room at a certain time. And you know, a couple of them had buckets and things like that in the room in case you had to use the restroom during the night. But I, was blessed to not have to go to school on the property of that institutional. It was called Arbor Heights Center. It was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They had trailers on site for the kids to go to school to because they were, again, uh, in remedial courses. So they had special ed teachers that worked inside of all of those different, there were like 22 kids on site. I think we had four different um, trailers. And I started there for about a week. And then the teacher was like, no, and went and did whatever she had to do. And I went straight to the local high school. Um, so I was a junior, I was entering my junior year. And I would—I had made it a habit of visiting and getting private time by going and hanging out in the University of Michigan law school library. I didn't go to the regular one. I would go to the law school library um, because I just loved, it just felt different. for, And I wanted to be a lawyer. That's what I wanted to do, I thought i think you would have made a great lawyer too huh i think you would have made a great lawyer. i think so too Uh, but god had other other plans so you know i but this particular day there was a a, an unattended table in the foyer and there were two chairs there but no one was there and there were clipboards and and a sign that said um juniors and seniors if you would like the opportunity to be considered for an appointment to the governor's advisory board on juvenile justice, fill out this application and, uh, and submit a five thousand word essay on why you feel you have something to say. And so I took it, I wrote the essay, and I mailed it in. And um, they just asked, "What year are you in school?" On it, junior or senior? And I, I'm going to be a junior in Huron at Huron High School, so I checked the box, mailed it in. Two months later, I get this big cylinder in the mail and I pull it out and it's like a gold seal proclamation uh, with the governor's signature. And it said, you know, you have been appointed to the governor's advisory board on juvenile justice. And then then the next day came a packet with uh, tickets and and a, a train ticket to come to Lansing, Michigan and all the hotel information and stuff. And so I went to that. And I'll never forget. It was during the time in the seventies when the United States um, hockey team was playing in the Winter Olympics, and it was the Russia and the United States. It was a big deal. And I walked into the room, and they had one of those TVs on one of those carts, like they used to push to the front of the classroom, you know, and uh, plug it in. Those big TVs, and they were all watching that. That match, that that hockey game, and so no one even turned around. And there was only two chairs open at this point: the one at the head of the table, closest to the door, and one right next to it to the left. Well, I sat to sat in the one at the end because there was nobody was in it. I didn't know. And uh, on a commercial, they all turned and looked, and they were like, they looked at me and they said, "Can we help you?" And I was like, "Yes. Am I in the right room? Is this the juvenile? This is the the you know um, governor's advisory board for juvenile justice?" They said, "Yeah, but." who are you? And I told them who I was and they go, well, you're a junior or is it? No, they said, what year are you in school? I said, I'm gonna be a junior. And they said, wow, how old are you? I said, I'm 15, I'll be 16 uh, in a few weeks on the 4th of July. And they said, and you're a junior at the University of Michigan? And I was like, no, I'm gonna be a junior at Huron High School. And they all looked at me, they were like frozen. Long story short, it turns out (laughs) because they wanted to see if I could still serve. And it got approved right then, like within 10 minutes. And then the governor came in and we all got started. And I served on that board as a juvenile voice um, for a year. And it was at the end of that year I asked, um, I petitioned the governor because I had heard through the grapevine through one of, most of the, the staff at that that group home, which was, they were wonderful. That group home was the best experience, one of the best experiences. I had in the system, even though it was an institutional setting, the the people that worked with us for the most part were social work and psych majors from University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan University in a town Ypsilanti right next door. And so we had surrogate parents. Each child had a mother and a father and you had siblings. So um, I had Fran and Daryl, and and then I had two siblings, Carla and Randy. So we were a little family and they bought me an attache case to prep me for going to uh, Anar- I mean, to Lansing for the, the first meeting. And, I, and they had told me, my surrogate parents, that they had been hearing in their classes about a new program, a pilot study, known as independent living, that was moving around the country and different states were going to try it and Michigan was one of them. And you're on that board, you should ask the governor if you can be one of the three people that they pick. And I did, and I was. And so, at sixteen, about five months into my sixteenth year, I uh, it was uh, second semester of my junior year. Uh, I was officially released from the system, and I went to the house that I was raised in, where my youngest sister, who didn't live there when I left, was there with her husband and two children. And uh, it's a small home, so I, I had the basement. And I went there, but I had my own check every month to you know do what I needed to do, and. Um, That was how I got out. So, yeah. Yeah. I I
0: love, you know, one of my favorite books of all time, and I've read it, I think, five times, was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. What my favorite part of his whole book and about his whole story was, when he was in prison, he said, they may hold my my body,
1: but but mind
0: is free. And I think that's truly amazing for people that have gone through a lot of trauma like us. That you know, our bodies may be going through whatever, but our mind is—we our mind is free, and we take that you know because in life, you can, there's two ways you can either go. Mm-hmm. If you have trauma, you can either be a victim,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or you could be a victor, right? And it's up to you to make that choice because some people, you know, even stuff happened to them 50 years ago, they're still taking that victim mentality instead of you know, like my one of my um, mentors, Ed Mylett, tells me. You know, things happen for you, they don't happen to you, and everything is a teachable moment. So that's, I think, what makes you so great, and that's why I feel a
1: kinship to you, my brother. Well, I appreciate that, Richard, but I got to tell you, I was I was actually envisioning different scenes that applied to what you were just describing as you were describing it, and it brought me to an intersection where I was like, hmm... Um, I I love what Richard is saying. However, I will say this when for me anyway, when you're in there, when you're actually living it, you I don't think I ever really knew the names for all the things that were simultaneously happening as far as the grooming process, because there were two going on. There was the one that greater than had me submerged within purposefully for my destiny, my legacy. But then there were the grooming processes of the opposite side that yeah. was trying, you know, setting it up for yeah. things down the road, uh, for me to and, and that happened. Um I when I it's interesting that once I left the system, I, I went straight into Up With People, which was a traveling um ambassador for the United States music group. Some people might remember them. Um they we you know we traveled all over the world and did Super Bowl half times and that kind of stuff and that was you know
0: because because you know I just love talking to you and I'm just so grateful I'm having a great time and I'm <laughs> Humbled. Um, I grew up my mother would always have records at home and I always grew up I, I was big on Motown you know mm. a, my favorite group of all time is the temptations. And my grandmother actually babysit Frankie Valley. So I, I was into that whole doo-wop and 50s stuff. Yeah. What was some of your
1: music, musical influences? Mine? Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, believe it or not, I was in love head over heels with Diana Ross. Again, the Motown sound. Um, I thought I was going to grow up and marry her when I was little. And I used to have pictures of her. Actually, I'd cut them out of magazines and put them in frames. And they were all around my room. And I loved the, 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 you know, I saw the movie. Interestingly, I hadn't thought about this till just now. The movie Lady Sings the Blues with my sister Cheryl, uh, the year before our mom died. And I truly related to, even then, her story and didn't understand why. Uh, the Billie Holiday story when it goes back to, you know, I just loved it how she came up and, and just overcame. And um, of course she ended up with a, 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 a not so happy ending through drug addiction, but nonetheless, uh, those things were starting to stand out already. I, and you know, you can see these things in retrospect, but I would say, yeah, that, that thing, because there were great lyrics. And I would say that it was Diana Ross because the lady sings the blues, which really was Billie Holiday, which really had a lot of all of her music was message music yeah. derived from experiences, real life things, strange fruit about the bodies of of of, of African American boys and men hanging from the trees. When she would see them when she'd go on tour, places that would not have access, uh, she would not have access to. And and it's interesting because on my own recording project, that that's the template I used. Uh I wrote everything comes through me. So I have always known that the best conversations and that's i was that kind of a kid i got myself out of a lot of tight jams going through those years um even in the years of the drug addiction by being able to craft a great story to capture someone's attention and and enforce them to be a part of the visual of what i'm speaking on and and, and changing their mind from wherever it was headed which was usually not something Uh, uh, positive okay so um that that um it's interesting because it was easy for me to get record deals simply because of the writing and i would always write about whatever it was i was currently living or had most recently lived and i stick by that premise today I tell all of my coaching clients that you don't, know, you know, when you're within purpose, you never have to sit down and come up with anything. You should never have to experience what people refer to as, uh, uh, you know, a writer's block, because it doesn't come through. It doesn't come from me. It comes through me. So all yeah. I have to do is make sure the spigot is open. I leave uh, the spigot open and let the blessings flow. Yeah, I love that. I'm a big
0: lyric guy. That's why I love to go back into the old blues. You know, I'm a big BB King guy just because I love, I'm a lyric guy, like you said. Yes. And, you know, and I believe that, you know, facts will tell, but stories always sell. That's you know right. what I mean? So then talk to us about traveling around the world with this musical group.
1: Oh, Up With People. Well, yeah. Up With People was a wonderful experience because there were five casts ABC, ABC, D&E, and you, we were, we reported. It's intricate. Well, I, they, they would travel around to high schools around the country every year, and they came to my high school in Niles, Michigan, now senior high school, the week before we graduated. So they, we were their last stop uh, for this particular year, uh, this tour, this cast that we saw. And then you, they did an assembly, of course, during the school day, and then they had a show that you bought tickets to and came back to that night. Well, I bought a ticket and I went. I just thought I was going to see it. I didn't even know you could be a part of it. But they auditioned. They made an announcement. If you'd like to audition and you're um, uh, 18 years old, you can audition. You can be a part of up with people. Well, I was a month away from my birthday, which is the 4th of July. um, And we were about to graduate. So it was like the last week of May. We graduated June 5th, 1980. And you had to report July 6th to Tucson, Arizona for staging, six weeks of staging. And I I went backstage and auditioned, which was not a singing or dancing, you just, they interviewed you, they wanted your personality. And a couple of days later, I got something in the mail that said, congratulations, you've been invited to join up with people for the 1981, uh, 80 and 81 tour. So I needed $5,000 and I had $5. <laughs> and so I, went to the local newspaper and said, listen, I showed him the letter of acceptance. And there'd always been one person from our town every year. And they were usually those kids who starred in all the school plays and musicals and went to the country clubs and were in the special choir, you know, and you know, of all the best of the best. And I wasn't any of those. I, I was in choir, but I was just one of those people that didn't want to really sing loud or anything. I just wanted an easy credit, to be honest. And so I got to I went to the newspaper and I said, I'm, I want to have a, a rockathon and where people can support me to help me raise this money. So the, the newspaper said, whatever you raise, we will match. Long story short, I did the eight hour rockathon, had a bunch of friends from school uh, come in to do it. We all had rockers. We did it in the parking lot of the school and we raised uh, $4,000. So they matched it. So I not only had my $5,000 tuition, but I had $3,000 pocket money uh, for the year. And so I showed up to Tucson, Arizona. First thing they do is start sticking you in these auditions, dancing, emceeing, um, and then soloing to see if you're a soloist. Well, they chose me to be a soloist and they gave me the two biggest solos, the showstopper at the end called, um, moon And then I had another up with people favorite, which was called what color is God's skin. And so, uh, Next thing you know, we do the six months the six weeks of staging, and my cast was chosen to go to South America and the East Coast and parts of Canada. So the very first place we went, though, uh, was like to the national bicycle races in Bisbee Arizona, and the Eric Hayden was in that contest. I'll never forget. And right after we left Bisbee, we went out of the country to Mexico City. And that is where and I sang Godskin there and I was standing out in the middle of an arena, a bullfighting arena. And when I finished What Colors God Scanned, they started throwing roses down there. And I had never heard so many voices uplift me or celebrate me or um, acknowledge me. And I was, changed forever i love it yeah i was changed forever so and i love how it began
0: i love how honest and open you are that's one thing i really you know who would ever think that me and you would be sure. friends after all these years coming from two totally different backgrounds but still just having the love for each other
1: mm-hmm.
0: so talk to us about once you got off tour you know what was that like because a lot of times you go you know a lot of people like i was in the yeah. house I got off such a high and then I went to a
1: really dark low. Right. Well, so, I, I what think, was it like when you got off tour, well, when I came off the tour of up with people, my, my, um, some people, my, my adopted mom back before she died, she was a nurse, but she also cleaned people's homes. Uh, you know, as so many African American women from the forties, fifties and sixties did. And she, would take me with her sometimes. So my final foster home, number 22, I posted on my page just a couple of weeks ago. I went and reunited with my foster father, the only one I ever had. Um, and they were number 22, home number 22. And they saw me when I came back from Up With People and said, where are you staying? I said, well, I guess I'm gonna move back into my sister's basement. And they lived in this ritzy neighborhood, had a big, beautiful pool and a big Tudor home. and sports cars and all these things. I had never been, you know, subjected to that kind of lifestyle. And they said, we want you to come live with us, the McGowans, Pat and Jean McGowan with their two sons, Brett and Jeff. And so I did it. I went over and they, you know, we started the process of college applications and I got into a music program at Bethel College, which is a Christian college in Mishawak, Indiana because uh, I had secretly had a dream all my life of becoming an Oral Roberts singer at ORU. I used to watch them on Sunday mornings, something good is going to happen to you. It was really just that song, I now know, that had me so connected to that. Um, but it nonetheless, you know, kid, you think what you think. So I was already actually moving into a dorm room at Bethel College and I was back in, which is in Mishawaka, and I like 40 minutes from Niles, Michigan, where I lived with the McGowans. They were on vacation. I had stayed because I had to move into the dorm. They were just on vacation for like four days. So I went to see a movie and I got there too soon. And it was 40 minutes before the movie started. And I bought a ticket and I'm looking, standing out in front of the theater, looking around like, well, what am I going to do for 40 minutes? And I looked straight ahead and there was a like a library across the street And in the window of the basement, there was a sign that said, aim high, come watch a free video. I was like, hey, there I could go watch a movie while I'm waiting for the movie. Boy, I went and watched that movie. It was the Air Force thing. Two days later, before the McGowans even got home, I was in Indianapolis standing in a room with flags with my right hand in the air. And the rest is history. (laughs) They came home. I was already on my way to Lackland. Right. Right. And it was the beginning because I felt the wonderful thing about that was I felt a pull. I felt what what people who are Christians or spiritualists refer to as being led. Mm -hmm. And I it didn't make sense to. You know, I had security. I had a beautiful home I could go to on the weekends. They had helped me with school because there was no financial aid papers for a kid in the system because you had to get your parents uh, tax information. And who's that, your caseworker? So they were willing to, they were working it so that they could be my legal guardians and you know, help me get financial aid. So they had gone through a lot. And when they found out I had just disappeared, they were like, what? you know, um, but I went into the Air Force. And because of the singing and whatnot, it was a great opportunity because I started, I got in there and found out they have a contest. So every year I was there, like maybe five months in at my 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 first base, a permanent station out after tech school and whatnot. It was at Phoenix, Arizona, Williams Air Force Base. And they said, Yeah, there's a base talent show. And if you place first or second, you get to go to the next level command level. When um, we were ATC Air Training Command, we trained all the pilots at our base. You go there and if you win first or second there, you get to go to worldwide. So I threw my hat in, got into the base contest, I won. I used the song Home, which is the equivalent of Over the Rainbow from the Wizard of Oz, but from the Wiz and I sang Home and uh, won, went to command level at Biloxi, Mississippi, um, Keesler Air Force Base and I won First place for command level and went to worldwide and won worldwide male vocalist, not one year, but two years in a row. And so that was when um I started getting there was someone in the audience that told someone that they knew, that told someone that, that they knew back in Phoenix at the base level. Yeah, this kid, da-da-da-da. And so I got a call from Pantheon Studios, asking me if I'd be interested in doing background vocals. And I didn't even know what that was. So they said, come in and audition. So I actually they met they had a, a pianist meet me there and he played over the rainbow. I sang over the rainbow. And I, next thing you know, I'm singing on Glenn Campbell, Waylon Jennings, Lee Greenwood, country people love me. <laughs> and I was singing background vocals and doing um, jingles and things like that. And so when I finally separated years later from the air force, now these people that have brought me, <coughs> excuse me, um, to the station, to the, to the recording studio rather, were moving to Hollywood. To work with Hanna Barbera and the Smurfs people, and they said, "Do you want to come? You should come with us." And um, I did it. And then um, they helped me get my my first record deal, and uh, things were going well. And I um, walked away from it because that's when, you know, I realized that I didn't realize that I realized <laughs> whichever direction which came first, the chicken or the egg, the low self esteem or the the knowingness. I didn't know. Was it always here? And I didn't know. Or do I know and I'm bringing it here? That kind of thing. So that- I, I ask real quick, because, you know, yep. this, you know, when I ever, ever
0: interview somebody, I close my eyes and, and, and I'm living your life in my in my, mm, in my
1: on the big screen.
0: Yeah. In my yep. mind. And yep. and I'm trying to think, you know, because a lot of people, even if they're in a situation, you know, they're going to stay in that situation because it was what they were used to because they get comfortable. So what was it that made you decide, all right, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, time to, to to move on? What was that mindset shift?
1: It wasn't, it wasn't a shift. It was the same surfboard I'd been on since the beginning. And that was those INs, instinct, that hunch, that feeling. I had not given it a name yet, but you don't need the name. You just need to answer. You just need to ask. And we had a conversation, a two way feed from day one. And because, you know, I thought it was like, say, for instance, the narrator of a book, that's what I thought it was. I didn't know higher power. I wasn't thinking it was God because I was actually very angry at God uh, from the organized religious. Uh, step uh, that I'd been sitting on all those years before I left the home. And so I didn't want anything to do with him, her, they, them. And so, but I was still following this lead, the calling. I could hear it like a siren. And so that's what would get me to move. And again, every day I was looking for the lead that would lead me to the next chapter. I knew I didn't, I didn't know what my story was about, who it was for, why I was writing it or living it, but I knew that I was, I knew I was, I knew it. And then once, you know, I got into my twenties where it got real because once I walked away from the record deal and stuff it was a couple years later when <clears throat> i decided i needed to do some work i felt oh i must have some trauma and stuff i was getting to that point so by the time i'm 26 um i was ready to begin the work so i didn't know where to start now were you in the throes of addiction at this point nope hadn't even happened yet okay, okay. had not happened yet i went to i was manager of an apartment complex in in Hollywood, right across the street from the Hollywood Bowl. And I went, I would go to a little store, a little newsstand down the street on Hollywood Boulevard. And I would, there was a, a period, a, a weekly thing called a drama log, where they had all the happenings, the auditions and stuff around town. And it was like five bucks. And back then, five bucks was a lot of money. And I didn't wanna pay it, so I would hide behind the turnstile and write down auditions if the guy didn't catch me. And I was looking in there for auditions and I saw a little bitty tiny ad, the smallest smallest ad ever. And it just blew up. I mean, like, like Roger Rabbit, got really big. And I looked around like, anybody see that? And I was like, I looked at it, it said Hypnotera. I was like, what in the world? I don't believe in that crap. Well, I called the number and ended up going. Long story short, She put me under and she told me, as you go up the stairway, Lauren, I want you to, you know, make it out of whatever you want, create it. And when you get to the top, she's going to tell you something else, but she said, on the way up, I want you to look to the left and see yourself in People Magazine, wave at the fans, look at their faces. What do you see? And then she woke me up. And I remember all along, I, I, didn't, I didn't believe I was really even hypnotized. I was like, this is such a crock. I'm, I'm, I'm relaxed, but I'm not asleep. I could jump up right now if I wanted to. So this is what I'm saying in my mind while I can hear her speaking to me simultaneously. So she wakes me up and she goes, so tell me about your stairway. And I did. I described it. And then she goes, what did you see when you got to the top of the stairs and the mirror that was up there waiting for you? I was like, what mirror? You didn't say anything about a mirror. She goes, yes, I did. I said, no, you didn't. That was when she reached behind the big potted plant she was sitting beside. And she pulled out a DAT recorder. And she rewound it. And I literally heard her ask me what I, what she had just said. Describe what you're wearing. This, that. And I was like, just staring at it. And then I heard myself respond, answering what kind of jeans I had on, what color my shirt was. And that scared me. I lost it. Cause i was like how can this be how can i be hearing myself say something i don't remember saying well that was the beginning and she you know long story short i worked with her for three 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 maybe four sessions and she told me that i was going to start having dreams that didn't make sense i'd be chased by giant bugs and stuff she goes that's just venting a trauma and stuff running out so that because when that gets out you'll have room for your dreams and she told me to keep a, dr- a dream journal right by my bed. And she goes, whatever you do, don't let your feet hit the floor before you write down what you woke up. Cause you'll forget. And I went, and she goes, if you have to hang a pencil from the ceiling so that you see it as soon as your eyes open, And I literally did that with a thumbtack and some string and put a little golf pencil and had it hanging down. And, uh, I had a dream one night that I was sitting in a game show and it was called Apology Accepted with Chuck Willery. It was just like Love Connection, except instead of voting on three people for a date, we voted on three apologies that could heal a severed relationship. And we had to say which one we thought was gonna put the people back together. So we were leaving the show, we've been escorted out. And I just said out loud to no one in particular, well, who came up with this? I love this idea. And they all looked at me and in one collective, they said, no one, Lauren, we have this for you. If you want it. And I, I long story short, I wrote it down on a three by five card um, in pencil and put a 10 cent stamp. And she had told me about People magazine. And so I had bought one and it was two feet away from me. So I just reached and, and flipped to the masthead at the beginning and found the editor, his name and address Ave, Avenue of the Stars, New York, New York. And I said, I, I just woke up from having a dream. I haven't done anything with it yet, but I'm going to, and I'm gonna start the world's first apology service and it's gonna be called Apology Accepted. I'm going to go and I'm going to do apologies for people who can't or won't do it for themselves for whatever reason. Here's my phone number. You might wanna call me. And Richard, one, one week to the day, my phone rang. It was a Monday and there he was. And he says, I got your card. Tell me what's happening. I said, well, I I actually booked one through one of the people that lives in my building for this coming Friday. We went from only going to do 500 words to 5,000 words and photos. I became a feature. And six weeks later, Anne's prediction of See Yourself in People magazine came true. And that was it. That was the moment I knew that manifestation was real. Know, was, yes.
0: Because, you know, I'm... I- I've started for the last six months, you know, getting deep into the mind and and learning about the mind. Mm -hmm. You know, know, I started listening to interviews from the early 1900s with, you know, Mr. Carnegie and how they were talking about manifestations and that there's a part of your, your brain that once you get activate that part of your brain, it will actually start manifesting things in your life. It does. Just, just like whenever you buy, a, if you bought a blue Honda, all of a sudden, all you see is blue Hondas. Yeah. It's the same thing with your mind. If Once you start seeing in your mind what you want to become or what you want to come to you, is it will actually start manifesting.
1: In it your does. Mind. Law of attraction. The, the, yeah. the, the um, breaker box yeah. of law of attraction gets... <laughs> You know, and it's just like you can I can literally hear and feel the engines going revving up as it starts. And I love the law of attraction because it doesn't play by any rules. I might do one little bitty thing and it sends something at lightning speed across the universe until it's sitting right on my lap. I I might do something that takes me six weeks or months to do. And, and you think nothing's happened, but it has moved the purposeful piece, like on a chessboard, exactly where it needs to be. You know, that's yeah. why I always tell people you have your, pa- your, 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 your passion on one side of the highway, you have your purpose on the other side of the highway, and you as the whistle stop, because it all comes through us on its way to the world, stand in the middle on the yellow line, painting it through the paintbrush of patience. And that's, what I learned that the law of attraction and purpose don't play by it. They don't have a clock. Everything is divinely and perfectly planned and placed. Everything has a number and everything has a
0: place. I love that. You know, like, and I always say, you know, if somebody's having a setback, it's just a set up for God to show out. That's right. in life. So even if you don't see things happening, they're happening behind the scenes for you. That's right. People you know, people are coming in play. You just don't see it yet. That's right. So then now did this business take off and then what did you do after that? It did. I did
1: literally uh, several thousand um, apologies for people. The purpose of that, it was, and I mean, I was on every television show, every talk show. Um, there was a how to book and B Dalton people magazine, Um, It was everywhere and I and my apartment was filled with people day in and day out. Um, I was on all the news. I was everywhere and there was no Internet in 1988. So this was all just organically going viral. What it was all about, it was not to make me famous. It was not other than the 15 minutes like Andy Warhol refers to didn't make me rich beyond my wildest dreams. But what it did was it taught me the power of forgiveness because I was able to watch it as a third party over and over and over. I literally would watch the I would watch the auras change color and vibration um, go from dim and weak to bright and powerful right before my eyes as I would deliver the apology through story and the way I'll never forget. I was like, how am I supposed to do this? How do I apologize for people that I don't know? And I heard what is greater than tell me. It is within their stories, your job, Lauren. They've already lived the answers, help them remember. And so I would just ask the person who hired me to tell me their fondest memories. Tell me the thing you love the most. And I would always put an E.D. on it, excuse me, because a lot of them didn't feel like they loved that person like they did before because they're not getting it. It's not being reciprocated. So I was instructed to always take them back and put the E.D. on it. And and I learned that in order why that was so important, because it was teaching me what I was going to need to do. So it used my own theory that theory that I use on others finally came home to roost for me. And that's when I went back to the beginning, went back to every trauma room that I had ever spent time in. And lo and behold, instead of seeing the big door of trauma, which is the only door I thought was in there, because I ran out of there like a bat out of hell, because that's what we do, fight or flight. And you think you never, I'm never coming back to this place. Why would I want to return to the scene of this crime? But life and what is greater than counts on us developing the courage through principles to look over our shoulder one day to the life we've already lived, acknowledge it, and be willing to visit. It's just like a rearview mirror in every vehicle. It's not meant for us to stare in, to get to where we're going. We plow down everything in our wake, but it's there to remind us that it's okay and necessary many times to just glance up and remind yourself of everything you've driven past and driven through because through and past are key words that that is done. It is now that it should all start making sense. And life leaves us clues, just like when I returned to those trauma rooms. In my haste, I didn't realize there were birthrights laying all over wrapped up beautiful gifts, all of them with my spiritual, soulful DNA name tag all over them. And this time, I picked them up. I took them with me. And when I opened them, I found the joy of being of service to others. I found the joy of forgiveness. I found the joy that there are in the realization that there are no mistakes. There are missteps, but never mistakes. I also learned that life and its situations are not happening to me because I'm a bad person. They are not happening For those traumatic experiences to define me, they're happening. So I can show the world that they have refined me. And today, 59 years since getting here on the 4th of July, I tell you the greatest gift I hold within my soul is the mantra that I thought would never change. For 40 some years, I woke up every day saying, what did I do to deserve this? In the moment I stepped completely inside of purpose and acknowledged it and promised for the rest of my days to never forget what this moment right now feels like. So I will always acknowledge you first from top to bottom, bottom to top, from side to side, side to side, corner and corner, corner to corner. Once I did that, my mantra changed from what did I do to deserve this? And every day now I wake up and I will until I leave this earth. I say now, what must I do to preserve this? It is that wonderful. You know you're living within purpose when you would gladly go back and live every pain moment over a thousand times for one more minute of today. That's a beautiful place to be and it's even more beautiful place to stay.
0: That's why I love you, brother. That's why I, I, I truly appreciate you. Now I got to ask a personal question. Um, I grew up without a father, without a, a figure in my life to teach me how to be a man, to be a, a husband. So I had to find mentors to, to that I can learn from. Now, since you grew up in the foster care system. How have you become the husband that you are today to Brian? Be
1: I I became well because first of all, I'll tell you, well, that's a great question, Richard. Another great one. You really are the male Oprah. Um <laughs> I believe because I did not I did not abuse my dream of the perfect person. I didn't abuse. Uh, what I'm saying is I never ran in and out of casual relationships. I held on to the possibility that there could be someone for me. I remember in my twenties, I dated somebody for like two weeks and I was like, this is not for me. All that, you know, where were you and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I just figured I wasn't meant for it because, you know, you got to understand there was a lot of subliminal reinforcement from my abusers that had said you know this is what happens to kids like you i know you may not think it feels right right now but it will one day because this is as good as it gets for kids like you blah 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 and it was after that transformation with apology accepted and i saw the beauty of forgiveness and that's how i forgave myself for thinking those things for feeling those things i forgave the abusers i was when i was taught by greater than how to reinvent blame and what I mean by that. And that's one of my speaking topics today, reinventing blame, because, you know, I had blamed a broken system. I had blamed my birth mom for why did you abandon me? Because I hadn't found her yet at this point. Um, But today I don't blame a broken system for anything bad. I blame them for giving me and grooming me for the voice that put me before Congress to testify on better Congregate care, better foster care reform. I just did TV special this week on that same thing: Dispersity, um, and, you know disproportionality, um, um, uh, uh, unconscious bias. I would not; those things would not matter to me if the system had not given me the voice that recognizes the importance of change within that. So it made me all of those situations or those opportunities created a, um, authority within my world, and so even the abusers telling me, you know, and I'm glad they did what they did, because you got to remember this is the 80s. AIDS was running rampant, killing people. I had peers who were dying at alarming rates because they were looking for love, just like me, but they were looking in all the wrong places, called one-night stands, back rooms, bushes, whatever the case may be. Wasn't that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places? Yeah, exactly right. So I remember at 22, after that one time I dated, I looked up and I said, you know what? God, I'm going to make a deal with you. I will work on becoming the best version of me instead of looking for Mr. Right. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna work on becoming Mr. Right. So, I would rather spend the last five minutes of my life with my everything than an entire life with just anything. And then around forty, I remember I stood outside one day and I looked up and I was like, "You took me seriously? You know, come on. Now it's been twenty-some years." Send me somebody. And, and I waited. And then when the day happened and I must have been prepared because I looked up and my everything was two feet in front of me with a golden aura, seriously, just above him. And I told him that day, I don't know what this means, but I know one thing for sure. I cannot let you leave without telling you that I believe you are my everything. And I am going to pursue you. And we have rarely been apart since that moment. I, I love it. I love it.
0: And I, I remember the day when you guys got married. I was celebrating with you. You um, were? Oh, of course. Of course. I celebrate my friends. You know that?
1: That was the greatest so, day of my life. It really was.
0: So now talk to us about what you're doing today. and Because, of course, you know, I love your your podcast, Bathroom Moments. I love it. Been what a, did you a, call been, it? I, I can't I can't remember the name of it. So did you I'm just say
1: bathroom?
0: bathroom? <laughs> Bathrobe <laughs> moments. Hey, I got a traumatic brain injury. You gotta look You're not the first. To Trust
1: me. I, I literally had a guest once that was, he wasn't <laughs> on the toilet, but he, he wasn't using it, but he was sitting there you know, with the lid towel. And yeah. I was like, why is it echo? Wait a minute. Is that a towel rack behind you? Are you in the bathroom? Yeah. He goes, well, isn't it bathroom moments? I was like, dude. So anyway, you're not the first, Richard. So, so talk to us
0: about what you're doing and how we can support your mission.
1: I'm going to start with the second half of that. I love that question because I love giving this answer. You can support my mission by continuing your mission. You can support my mission by supporting someone else's mission. I treat what I do. I treat what you do. I treat, I look at what we all do as if it were, which it is, a modern day stone soup experience. We all have something to throw into that pot that sits in the middle of the town square. doesn't matter if you've got a flock of chickens to contribute because you're so far ahead economically and success-wise than most, or you may just have in your trash can, the, the, the shell that the pea pods used to be in, bring them. I don't care, we can use them as a garnish, but bring what you have. We've been instructed to come as we are. And so that means that we all have something. If we all bring something and put it in that community pot a little bit of something will always prevail over a whole lot of nothing and so it you know when people see that there is value within all of us um that's what i love to tell people to do when they go "Well, how can i what can we do for you how can we be of service to you by doing what you're doing because the law of attraction couldn't have brought us together if you weren't doing what you were supposed to do. I want you to meet that next person who is seeking you and you are seeking them. I want, you know, and, and it's like a slinky. It's, you know, it, the slinky works because there's weight, the weight distribution at each end of the coil. How That's why it does head over heels and keeps moving, you see. and And it's not about moving up. A slinky can't go up a stairway it can only go down. And so I look at it as passing it down, you know, down was a word that I use in a negative fashion for most of my life. But once the slinky download came, it changed it all for me because the only way the slinky can go head over heels, the weight represents the purpose. That weight was placed right there on each end on purpose. It was the only way that thing could work. And so what I love about it is I don't have, when I said earlier about you don't have to come up with anything, you don't have to, you know, you just, if you do your best, like the four agreements request, you do your best, whatever, it's going to send the back end of that slinky into what is next for us in the law of attraction, all of it comes together. So really, I truly mean that to all of you and to you, Richard, that's what you can do. Keep doing what you've been doing because it must be right. Because here we are fulfilling a promise, the promise, where two or more come together. Wonderful things will happen. I just don't put a sticker on what wonderful things means. I don't live in a world of surprise anymore. I remember the day God said to me, Lord, it's time to stop being surprised by my blessings. And I was like, well, how can I not be surprised? He goes, are you surprised when Amazon Prime sends you an alert and says that shirt you ordered is going to be delivered Thursday by nine o'clock? It'll be on your stoop. And then the doorbell rings at 858 and you look out and there's no one there. And the guy dropped it, took a picture and left. But you automatically look down because you go, oh, there's the package I was expecting. You're not surprised. If you can believe in Amazon Prime, why can't you believe in me? And so no. i don't live in I live in a world of expectancy now I just expect blessing, abundance overflow the
0: the, you know and a lot of people don't realize how important what things that you say to yourself and can change your whole life like I have five different things that I sell myself every day. you know it was taught, taught to me by mr um Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. But I think that a lot of people don't have a lot of that positive self-talk and then they wonder why they're not getting blessings because they're, they're, they're not expecting the blessing. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And it's interesting that you say that. I remember. Well, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people, Richard, when you say self-talk, because it's I always use this example. If you remember the first time you heard yourself on a recording right like a cassette when you were a kid or something you're like oh my god i don't sound like that because you sound different inside with,
0: i still feel that way when i hear myself on a recording See?
1: and 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 that i remember when that was the case and that's how it is it was for me with that self talk i didn't i couldn't ascertain is that me or is that something else talking through me but it has no, it, if it was go Lauren, it knows I'm going to have a heart attack. Because I told God that once during a suicide attempt, I'm going to give you one more year. I'm going to come down off this roof, but I'm going to give it one more year. And you need to, if you're who you say you are, then, then figure out how to get to me in a way that I could never say, well, that could have happened to anybody. And that's how it led me to the the ad in the in the newsstand that blew up which led me to Ann, which led me to people magazine which led me to legacy it took one time yep you know and you know why it only takes one time purpose because it's the truth and the truth is the only thing in the universe that never changes and will never change on me on us so if you heard the truth and you know it because the truth is the only thing that has a ring to it did it have a ring that's that hunch then you don't need to hear it a thousand times. It's going to be the same thing. If you you're going to hear the ring when you're ready to hear the ring. So I now listen for the ring of truth. If it doesn't have the ring, I leave it alone. And you know where I find that? What door I go through to find to to turn my ears up, my 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 soul up to hear the ring because it comes in different decibels. I do it through the question mark. See, I used to be afraid of the question marks. What's in there? Who is that? What's that sound? Where am I at? All the question marks. And then one day, I had to download, I am the question mark. It is through me that you find all answers. If I don't see the question in something, it means it's a setup. It means that I already think I know everything. If I don't hear a question in something, then there what is, what, what's the reason going in there? There's nothing to learn. There's no new knowledge to gain. So if I don't see the question mark, I leave it alone. Because when I see the question mark, I know that God is in it. Because that's why I need him to answer the question. He's smarter than me. He's greater than me. He knows more than me. He, they, them, whatever you ascribe to but don't be afraid of the question marks because that's how you end up never questioning the truth or yourself, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you who exactly. God. Yeah.
0: And I love that. And, you know, I was talking to a billionaire and I said, what's the difference between a rich person and a poor person? He says it's the questions that they ask. Yeah. And that that was a life changer. So my last question that I have, I ask everybody and I love, I get a th- ask a thousand people. I get a thousand different answers. <laughs> you know, we live in a crazy world. We're still in a uh, COVID world. Yeah. Um, you know, here in New Jersey, a lot of parents lost their jobs. So we got parents driving Uber, you da- know, DoorDash. Oh yeah. And we got grandparents homeschooling kids. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody that's struggling to do something in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to take that step. So if there's somebody struggling out there in their life today, what can they do in the next 24 hours to get
1: some help? Some help. It depends on what that word means to them. You, I would say, you know, to get some help, you have to be completely open. You yeah. have to know and trust where you're asking for help. So for me, that is greater than. And I'll put it this way. The easiest thing I've ever done, the easiest decision and the best decision I've ever made was when I decided when I got to the point where my understanding, my discernment ended. I had reached the limit of my knowledge. I then turned to what is greater than, and I say four words, and four words only. Thy will be done i love it
0: brother i'm so grateful that we got a chance to hang out and talk today and you know i support you in everything you do i'm just so appreciative that i get the honor of calling you friend
1: same here richard i mean that i truly do all right brother well have
0: a blessed week this will go out in a couple weeks and it'll go out everywhere Thank you so much, brother, and have an amazing weekend.
1: You as well, and thank you to all of you out there for listening. God bless you all. Be Amen. the blessing you'd like to receive. God bless you, brother. Amen. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying
0: our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand-new T-shirt line that's coming out. Hats coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass kicking coffee and and it it will get you moving in the morning. So guys, if you're interested, go to www. .richardkaufman.net check us out leave us a note tell us what you'd like and we'll actually send it to you the new website is being built so if you guys want to our book is out there on Amazon it's called A Hero's Journey From Darkness to Light definitely check it out it talks about my story but it also talks about how to survive depression how to survive addiction All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.